0: So, gentlemen, uh, it's uh, it's really, I think, time that we have to address uh, what has been an elephant in the room for some time, uh, which is, are the journalists going to be the last people actually using Twitter, <clears throat> the site now known as X? The uh, data over the past uh, year, which uh, looked at uh, its first year under one Elon Musk, has uh, turned out to be absolutely terrible in terms of engagement metrics. Downloads fell uh, 38% globally over the past uh, year. U.S. mobile app downloads fell 57% over the same time period. Uh, usage has decreased a significantly. Average time daily per user dipped. It's uh, basically everything's down. Um, the, the actual sort of uh, uh, you know reasons for this are you know totally up to totally up to you to judge and you know the the there's obviously different reasons that people have claimed for it but you know from being something that really was the center of conversation for quite some time many years uh and certainly within the context of elections uh how much does this actually matter that we're probably going to be going into the next year with you know fewer people real people actually using uh twitter uh, to, you know, for any real purpose compared to what we've had in the past.
1: John, I want to yeah. let you use your Eric Adams line because I know you love it.
2: Well, yeah, well, so I, I think in this case, to, to some degree, because um, I do love the Eric Adams line, you know, elections are won by people on social security and not people on social media. However, uh, you know, I, I think that, that Twitter X has, Done a lot to sort of drive the dialogue, right? The the people that are sort of creating the the narrative around what's happening and what it all means, uh, X is kind of the watering hole for them. Uh, I, I do think that at least in this cycle, the uh, you know the sort of the, the the biggest and best user of of Twitter from uh, 2016 is you know obviously President Trump, and he's still uh, truthing and having uh you know those those truths or you know those posts uh you know cross posted over twitter is it looks like screenshots um yeah and, and i think it depends right i mean how many how many of those if you dig into the numbers how many of the the fewer engagements are less bots how many of it you know is there is the partisan makeup different is that you know is there a you know progressive backlash because elon owns it now uh I think it's an interesting question but I think it's probably a little too early to say.
1: Yeah, I think he I think he's made the product marginally worse in various ways. I I am in a interesting position because as you guys know um but maybe most of our listeners don't know I, I had been off Twitter for a year in a Uh, in a kind of protest (laughs) my account got suspended for a joke i made by some i don't know school hall monitor lib it was a pretty harmless joke and i just didn't really i refused to delete the tweet and i just said i'm going to take a hygiene mental hygiene break and was off twitter for about a year i've got a little side piece account now i've been back on for a few weeks and man i'm just angrier i'm more anxious my attention span is shorter i mean it's remarkable how like i can't overstate how noticeable and how quick the effect is so it's definitely not good for um extremely online people like us i think it's probably bad for your health on on net your your um your productivity, all the, all those things. But I've noticed, you know, having been away for, for a year that, yeah, the product is a lot worse in various ways. I see a lot more just trash in my timeline. I don't know how much of that is because I haven't cultivated, you know, on my new side piece account the way I did on my longstanding old account, but just and when I say trash, I don't just mean sort of empty calories. I mean like uh, disturbing stuff, uh, you know, racist stuff, uh awful stuff um you know stuff in foreign languages that that just doesn't make any sense from an algorithmic standpoint so it it does seem like a trash product as far as the election and its role in politics goes i will i i've said and others have said i know that i think the most interesting thing that twitter did for politics and a lot has been said about trump and i I won't add to it but the most interesting thing it did for politics is and it's a little bit good but it's mostly bad is to show how um fundamentally stupid and more to the point insane many of our elected leaders are right and and when i say insane i mean stuff that really would get you sort of uh close monitoring in an inpatient setting um you know uh in in various ways and i'm talking about you know guys like hayden the the former intelligence official who's you know said all kinds of crazy shit on twitter but also his his sort of Mirror image counterpart on the MAGA right in 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 Flynn, um, but just the the number of members of Congress, elected officials, sort of Davos crowd, unelected deep staters, who just routinely show their entire ass on Twitter in really embarrassing ways. I think is instructive. It's changed the way I look at. What it takes to run a global order, what it takes to run a country, uh, who the people are who are running the country. I think, in a in a weird way, that's a great public service, but it's also uh, deeply disheartening and worrisome.
0: So the thing that I just want to say, I feel like I'm the most, I'm the heaviest Twitter user uh, uh, that you know out of the three of us. But I also think that one of the things that is true for me is that Twitter used to genuinely be fun but also I'm one of these people who is I I just dislike having multiple social media accounts to monitor and pay attention to I'm on I'm on Instagram exclusively because of family members who are on Instagram and one friend of mine who has a great Instagram game uh, and I and that's really like the only reason that I'm on there because when they send me a link I need to be able to see what they're trying to send me um the i don't like to use multiple social media and so i really just chose at a certain point that i would only be on twitter and the difference between uh, especially when you're like looking for something and you've come across like the way that you were tweeting maybe you know 8 10 years ago versus now it is just a complete difference and one of the things that i definitely do think has happened and i think that this was ushered in really over the past couple of years is that people are much stupider on Twitter than they used to be. It used to be kind of a, a situation where you would have a a level of interaction with people who are intelligent and then you could basically ignore all of the different people who were stupid. And maybe it's just that I've been around long enough or that you know I have a big enough followership or followership or something like that. But you can tweet something out that's simply a form of analysis or an observation these these days about political you know, ramifications of things. And everyone will come down on you from one side or the other, calling you an idiot, calling you names, calling in my case, bringing my family into it uh, and and say just the most obscene, sometimes uh, threatening, like violently threatening yeah. language for what is, frankly just fairly banal analysis of a situation. Um no nowhere has that been more present for me uh, just in a perfect example because it's kind of low stakes. Um, you know, because I can get people getting hyped up about, uh, you know, this, that, or the other, you know, issue that that is deeply important. You know, it's not if if you were you know tweeting about uh, Israel or about Ukraine or about you know the something war where people are dying. Just the past couple of weeks of my my observations about what was playing out in the speakership race, every single time I offered some point of, point of analysis, people would come down like a ton of bricks. Uh, and I do I do look at their accounts because I I'm always curious like is this a person? And most of the time it really does seem like it's a person. It's not like a bot the way that it used to be. And it's it's I I have to say this: they're baby boomers. They're overwhelmingly baby yeah, boomers. A lot of them,
1: yeah. and, and and
0: and, and I-, I just have to say this: baby boomers for whatever reason they have no capacity to see. It's it's like they don't think of tweets as being part of a Thread, like they they'll they'll cotton onto something that's that's part of a thread of okay here's some observations about the way things are going and they'll treat it as if it's the only thing you said and sometimes and this is really just it actually happens more often than not usually what I'll do is I'll just pick one or two of the most aggressively dumb but also clearly a real person you know Grandma So and So you know lives in Florida retired teacher da 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 you know and I'll just say why are you saying this? You know, that's not what I said. And, and I, and you, and what happens quite often, in fact, I would say it happens the majority of the time is people will actually apologize and they'll go like, oh, I didn't see it, you know, or I didn't see your other post or, you know, ah, uh, you know, yeah. Like it, more often than not, that happens. Now, sometimes they double down and they're like, well, you're just, you know, they just try to find some other way to make you feel shitty. But it's just funny to me that like, you, you're being aggressively dumb online and you're basically picking out something that's flashing on your screen for a brief second, not even bothering to see anything else that the person is saying. And it really is like the next iteration of people who only read the headline. It's like they're not even bothering to read the full headline. You know, <laughs> they can't even be yeah. troubled to get past word <laughs> six.
1: There's a lot in that. I think it's all, there's a lot of fascinating topics there. I'll just say a couple of quick things. I I think, one, that is, that is an example of a kind of, it's a similar dynamic to mob mentality. And that's a phrase that's overused. But the idea that you will do things as part of an anonymous crowd, that you will be the worst version of yourself, that you will be more outrageous, more violent, more impulsive. Less moral, all of those things. When when you are when you can you perceive your own anonymity, or you perceive that you're part of a large crowd. There's something like that operating on Twitter and the anonymity of it. That's why I think it's a good idea generally for sites to move towards a lack of anonymity in users. I mean, there's some spaces obviously, you know, where it, that's important from a free speech perspective. But I think as a as a matter of like cultural health and social health, you should be who you are online generally. And I think it will make people a little bit more civil. I think the the thing you experienced is so true. I, I'll, I'll try and tell a very, very short version of this story, but I was trying to explain to my wife about, um, we were talking about the, the Palestine stuff and the people who are tearing down the, the, the posters of the kidnapped Israelis. And it was related to this. And this was just the other day. And I was talking about how I was once on a train as a poor college student with my girlfriend at the time from the the Spanish side of Basque country to the French side of Basque country. And it was me and my other English speaking girlfriend on this train with 40 Basque soccer hooligans. And they weren't just Basque soccer hooligans. They were Basque soccer hooligans after a loss. And they were all drunk out of their minds, right? Mm -hmm. And they, all of them, they're all 40 of them, took turns basically abusing my girlfriend and I. Thankfully, no one laid hands on her, but, you know, all kinds of epithets at us and and Spanish, French, Basque, English, uh, knocked a book out of my hands, a whole bunch of crap. And I just sort of sat there and stewed because it was a train of 40 people who were drunk Basque soccer hooligans. We get off if, the train. If, it, if it'd
2: only been three or four, what are you taking out? Well, here? The, he, here's, New Jersey I, State I, I, issued piano wire, and uh, I used gone to, to town. joke.
1: I used to joke if I had a claymore sword or a claymore landmine, that would have been the only thing that would have got me <laughs> through that that train car. But anyway, long story short, I get off the train with my girlfriend. It's late at night. We go out into the parking lot. All these drunk back soccer hooligans with their ridiculously large berets. If you've ever seen the hats they wear, yeah. are dispersing. I go up to one of the worst offenders and I push him and I start screaming at him and I just shove him and I would say what you would expect me to say. You're all alone now. What's up? That that's where that, I was so frustrated. And man. Not, you know, there wasn't some satisfying fistfight. He folded into a little crumpled paper ball of embarrassment and humiliation and meekness like a lamb. Right. Mm-hmm. Like like he was so embarrassed and so humiliated by what had happened and the fact that I was calling him out on it, that he just sort of like drunkenly muttered an apology and stumbled off into the night. And I think that is Twitter on a daily basis. And it's exactly the phenomenon that you're talking about. And it's not good for anybody. I mean, we should say, I should say I'm the worst version of myself on Twitter. So, I mean, to the extent that people are using it less, probably a good thing.
2: I think you're your best version, but you know, agree (laughs) to disagree there. But I do think, you know, going back to Twitter though, and and what it all means for, for the cycle. um, I, I think one thing where Twitter X whatever continues to be invaluable is in highlighting stories that may not otherwise get coverage. Um, yeah. You know, as we sit here today, there was a story last night that seemed to broke on Twitter uh, about Jewish students at Cooper Union uh, in New York basically being like besieged in a library by Hamas protesters. And given how the New York Times has handled um, you know the events mm-hmm. of the last few weeks in Israel and then here domestically with around anti semitism, does that story get covered? You know, with Substack, you have to affirmatively subscribe to stuff. And you know, with, with with Twitter, part of the the thing there is just that it can sort of bounce off of people that you follow or things like that. So I, I do think that, I mean, it is an absolutely, it's an open sewer, but there is, there's still value there.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's really good for, for basically two things, which is uh, immediate jokes and reaction to live events you know, essentially. So that means like sports and debates. Um, uh, And uh, because it still is kind of the place that people just rush to, um, you know, when you, you you know, have you seen that play kind of a thing uh, or in response to something that uh, is, is particularly obnoxious, that something that gets said and it's highlighting those types of stories. So I still find utility in it. I just think it's gotten a lot stupider and, I'll, I'll give you an example I'll just give you an example because it, it, it flows into the next thing that we should talk about which is that yesterday uh I pointed out that you know after all that the Democrats you know end, wanted to create more chaos but they ended up with uh, uh a, a more socially conservative uh speaker uh and a less likely Ukraine funding uh out of this new house setup. Meaning that Democrats got the absolute short end, I think, of, of this situation, except for one aspect. And we'll talk a little bit about Mike Johnson. But the one aspect is the thing that we've mentioned before, which is that uh, Democrats effectively used eight angry Republicans to shiv the biggest fundraiser that the Republicans had going into the next election. Uh, and that that's something that is going to be a real problem. In all likelihood, particularly now that they've replaced, um, even though even though the news is out that that Jeff Miller, who is, you know, done so much work for McCarthy, is going to go over and, and work with Mike Johnson, the new speaker. Um, he he is someone who has never, at least as far as I can tell, he has never raised more than two million dollars in the cycle, meaning that you're going from somebody who raised 80 million in the last quarter to somebody who's never raised two million in the cycle. It's a huge drop off. Uh, gigantic and like nothing we've ever seen, uh, and that's going to be a problem for people who are interested in getting reelected. and uh, And we'll see how many other people kind of get into the uh, into the job of fundraising to try to maintain this House Republican majority. Uh, now that now that they've settled on who the speaker is going to be, and so you know, look, this is Thunderdome, and so we're not we're focused more on the election side of things. But now that we've we have a speaker i think we have to discuss kind of what that means for the party um mike johnson is not your typical uh republican speaker in a lot of different senses he is not known for being part of the kind of uh you know strong fiscally conservative faction either in the you know entitlement reform side or in the you know debt fight side or anything else along those lines he's much more known for being Uh, for being a very solid Christian social conservative uh, of the Southern Baptist variety. Um, By the way, this is one of those days when I've already had to point out to three different journalists that that Southern Baptists, uh, yes, they are the largest Protestant denomination in America. Perhaps you should know a thing or two about them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yes, uh, it's, it's an interesting move for a lot of reasons. We'll see whether he ends up being kind of his own man or whether he's someone who just inherits a lot of his fellow Louisiana representative Steve Scalise's approaches to things, uh, but it's it's a new face for the party and not one a lot of people expected. I'm curious as to your reactions to how that uh, ascent happened uh, and what it means for both the immediate, but also you know looking ahead, what it means for this coming year and their uh, the ability of Republicans to hold on to this majority.
2: I think that the immediate thing is that it is sort of signals at least a detente for the time being between the factions within the Republican conference. Um, you know, I, I think that, in, and this is such a loaded analogy now because of what we found out later on about, you know, Speaker Dennis Hastert, but, uh, you know, in, in some of his unsavory behavior, you know, before life in politics. But setting that aside, I mean, this feels a lot like the Hastert's ascent to the speakership, um, you know, after. Fellow Louisiana or you know, after Louisiana and Bob Livingston, after Newt Gingrich uh left the speakership, you know, Livingston was speaker elect, got caught up in, you know, what would be probably a survivable, you know, kind of sex scandal now. But you know, as a result, you know, did not, you know, go ahead as speaker. And it sort of threw in, you know, in that point, you know, I think this was nineteen ninety-eight, through you know, House Republicans into chaos with, you know, a lot of people wanting to to grab the crown. And at that point, you know, Denny Hastert, who was the chief deputy whip for at that time, you know, majority whip Palm delay kind of emerged for, I think a lot of the same reasons as Johnson is he's a guy that everybody likes, you know, or no one really dislikes. So he is, you know, I think that having, you know, for the you know more conservative faction, you know, he's a guy whose prize sympathies are certainly more with them, but uh, you know, even, you know, even with, you'll see some of the press reports of Democrats saying like, he's kind of a nice guy, you know, and he's, not terribly objectionable. So I, I think for the time being, I mean, I think having somebody that everybody is okay with is like the most important thing for Republicans. Cause now it lets them, you know, get back on message, right? We had the, you know, the resolution yesterday, you know, expressing support for Israel, which, you know, unanimously Republican supported also of, of note, uh, you know, you know, speaker now speaker Johnson, uh, the last time you had a Republican unanimously elected speaker uh was John Boehner after the 2010 wave election. So, you know, not Paul Ryan, not Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, J- Johnson, you know, partly by fatigue and partly by being sort of, you know, kind of the lowest common denominator, you know, among the various factions, you know, gives you somebody now who can get you know the trains running again. Um, you know, I think he's going to run into a lot of the same problems as, as Speaker McCarthy did. But you know, it seems like so far, at least what you hear from the Freedom Caucus guys, that they're going to give him some sort of grace period. Uh, but you know, I, I think the, I think the where it intersects with the presidential campaign, you know, is you know, is the speaker, you know, then just congressman's activity around uh, certification and around you know electoral vote count in 2020. And you know, I'm sure we're going to have several news cycles of relitigating all of that again. But I, I think for the time being, I think he's going to, you know, restore something as close to normalcy as you can. And, you know, by all accounts, he's a good guy is a very bright guy. Um, you know, but it's, it's going to be a, a new look. And I, I, the one last thing is seemingly just by the way things happened, didn't have to make any promises to anybody. At least, you know, there's no reports about that. No coalition government or no, you know, power sharing. He is the speaker and unanimously. So, and it doesn't sound like there were side deals and, you know, cause he sort of hung back in this process. So he is probably going to be more unencumbered, at least for the time being than some of his predecessors.
1: Yeah, I think that's an... Interesting point. And I was, I kind of wonder what shook loose. There's always, you know, you guys have been on the other side of this, certainly more than I have. I've spent some time reporting up on the Hill in my career as a journalist, but uh, I don't have the experience you two do, but it seems to me there's always kind of the couple of things that get leaked out that serve various factions interests to get leaked out about how something happened in the background. And then there's always like a half dozen things that you never see in the press, but you hear, you know, uh, over drinks, or you, 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 you get a story from an ex-staffer a couple years later about what was really going on, and I, I really do wonder what shook loose in this, whether it was McCarthy calling off his dogs, or, you know, what was going on there. I've, as far as Johnson himself, I, I've heard him. I heard, I saw somebody compare him to uh, Ned Flanders, and that kind of, that kind of rings true to me. Um, I do think it's interesting that you know he comes from uh, the policy kind of arm of, of leadership. And, and as far as I know, has never whipped votes or had to whip votes. And so it's interesting to me. And I think a potential problem for him, I think his two big handicaps are going to be, he's not a vote whipper and he's not a fundraiser as Ben Mm -hmm. mentioned. And those are going to be two big problems that he's going to have to deal with. As far as the actual slings and arrows of the office, I do think that there maybe is a sense, certainly in addition to exhaustion that you know at the worst case scenario this guy will be speaker for another year year and change um, and then you have another crack uh, at either electing a different speaker or you know you won't have that option and people will be fighting over minority leader uh, jobs. Uh, I do think it shows you know something I think Ben has talked about too that it, that the the triumph of kind of personal beefs and personal relationships, the fact that everybody seems to like Johnson uh, turned out to be more important. Everybody in the caucus uh, turned out to be more important than a lot of their individual concerns, whether that's Ukraine funding or whether it's election, you know, January 6th, 2020 kind of stuff. Um, For instance, Ken Buck, who made a big deal about how he wasn't going to support anyone who was involved in January 6th or efforts to overturn the election, seemed to be pretty comfortable voting for Johnson. And I can squint, I can squint my eyes and make a colorable argument that what Johnson did is categorically different than what some of the dumber members of the caucus did when it comes to January 6th, in the sense that he... You know, follow the rule of law, let it let a wrote an amicus brief and, you know, let a legally court driven effort, um, you know, with, I think, a, a foolhardy theory and a rotten cause underlying it. But in, in any event, I can kind of squint my way to seeing how Buck could see that as different than actively uh, supporting an insurrection or kind of extra legal means of overturning the election. But nevertheless, it is evidence that, you know, whatever kind of uh, policy, Uh, gripes or personal gripes were animating the blocks that opposed the other um, failed nominees for speaker uh, didn't stand in Johnson's way so it'll be interesting to see whether Mm -hmm. he can maintain any kind of goodwill going forward
0: well he's got some uh, pretty big fiscal challenges right ahead of him and we'll see how uh, how capable he is at navigating those and yes I think that uh, you know the point really here is is to sort of say um, you know, uh, and this is true, by the way, I, I would just going back, you know, Matt Gates and his crew, mostly most of them wanted Jim Jordan um, uh, and Jordan, uh, just like uh, uh, just like Johnson, is not someone who has a history of, of whipping votes, nor does he have a history of of fundraising prowess. So it's in a certain sense, it's like, OK, well, it's, this guy has some of the same defects as the other potential candidates. Um, the one who really got shivved. Uh, definitely seems to have been Tom Emmer and obviously his job is is whipping votes uh in terms of his approach so it's it's an interesting scenario uh and he's definitely a cipher uh compared to some of the others uh so we'll see how big of a role uh you know he plays in terms of the leadership of the party and how how he's able to chart a path on so many different big uh questions um speaking of one area where he's not going to break with the herd, just based on, you know, everything that he said. And also I was listening to one of his interviews uh, today from a a couple of years ago about a trip that he took to Israel. Uh, He is definitely in the, in the uh, Southern Baptist uh, vein of viewing America's relationship with Israel as being a tenant of his faith. Uh, You're not going to see any kind of, I mean, I think you you're going to see a maxing out toward Israel uh, in terms of breaking off aid to them and sending that over. Uh, to uh, to the Senate uh, very very quickly uh, in order to try to give them the kind of backing that a lot of members have wanted them to give, and as it happens, um, this weekend in Las Vegas is the uh, is the gathering of the Republican uh, Jewish Coalition, uh, their annual summit, which is in uh, uh, which is at the Venetian, and everybody's speaking. It's Trump, DeSantis, Pence, Ramaswamy, Haley, Christie, uh, Tim Scott, and Bergam. Uh, of those who are speaking, uh, only uh, five of them have made the next debate stage. Uh, Tim Scott has not. Mike Pence has not. Doug Burgum has not. Uh, and so that debate is going to take place or is scheduled to take place uh, on November 8th uh, on NBC, uh, hosted by uh, Kristen Welker, Lester Holt uh, and Hugh Hewitt. And. Um, uh, in partnership they're doing a nbc's partnership is with uh salem radio so uh, i'm curious as to your thoughts on kind of uh, playing out the next say um two weeks or so of activity on the on the presidential uh, front uh because it, it certainly seems like there's going to be a lot of attention paid to the foreign policy aspects of things hewitt is obviously known as being a guy who really goes after people on on the military stuff, on foreign policy stuff. I can't think that he's going to be asking domestic-focused questions at this particular time. Uh, and obviously, they're all going to be speaking uh, to a to the RJC audience, which cares mostly about those issues. Uh, what do you expect to see from these candidates? And is this going to kind of continue the same trend line that we're seeing uh, toward uh, consolidation of, of who people think is really serious?
2: Dan, I'll let you go first.
1: Yeah, so I, you know we've talked a few times now about the increased salience of foreign policy. I think, um, I, 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 think we're seeing some of the the you know some of the stuff we said to watch out for, you know about how important foreign policy would be, um, play out, and you know I think the thing that I guess surprised me, although it shouldn't have, and certainly didn't surprise a lot of American Jews, is how. Salient the schism on the left over support for Israel um, has been to the traditionally overwhelmingly liberal Jewish American voter. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't, you know, there are people talking about how sort of, you know, Biden's support, um, you know, for Israel, which has already been tempered, you know, a dozen different times from his initial good statement. Um, is going to hurt him in places like Michigan with an outsized Palestinian and Arab population. Um, I, I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, it's such a small voting group and there'll be 15 other things going on that drown out whatever statistical effect there is from that. But I do think there is a kind of broader problem where in a lot of moderates and not just Jews, but just sort of, um, A lot of just kind of kitchen table normie voters who thought they could accept the kind of broader intersectional critical theory, overeducated, underemployed, um, ideological coalition of which they were a part. They thought it was kind of acceptable that they could live with it, are now seeing kind of how ugly that is and what it entails. And that's especially true of older voters. I mean, we talk about boomers when it comes to Facebook, but God bless boomers on the issue of Israel and one of America's closest allies and, and seeing uh, the right way um, where things stand on that issue, because, you know, I think John, uh, you uh, sent around a poll um, that breaks down, you know, views on, on uh, Israel, Palestine by generation and demographic. And, and basically we're, you know, 15, 20 years, if not less from, um, from, Support for Israel on the broader left becoming net negative, right? And uh, that's a that's a fast train coming. It's going to have all kinds of electoral consequences, uh, not just again among Jews who make up two percent of the U.S. population, um, but are obviously um, you know overrepresented because of their um, you know high high level of accomplishment and their other demographics uh, in you know in decision you know making corners, but also as as Ben pointed out from the kind of um, you know, Southern Baptist evangelical wing, which is still a real thing. I mean, evangel- evangelical Christians are less of a dominant force in Republican politics than they were ten years ago, but they're still a dominant force. And you know, you talked about that being a tenet of of Johnson's faith. I remember the there's a Simpsons joke that called to mind where uh, there's a sign that says, "Now leaving Missouri, now entering Missouri." And I think there's a distinction between the kind of Israel in Congress and Israel. And I think uh, I think that Mike Johnson is very much part of the Israel caucus. Mm -hmm. And um, and and there are still a lot of Republican voters who are part of that caucus and are strong. And there's another thing going on. And then I'll shut up. I know I I, by the way, I know I'm not answering your question about the debate at all Mm because I still want to think about it. But there's another thing going on, which is that. You know, negative partisanship being what it is, we bring it up once a week on the bingo card here, um, the same way that Republicans lost enthusiasm for Ukraine when it became clear how many libs were going to hang blue and yellow flags from their townhomes and and put the bumper stickers on their Audis and Subarus. Um, the opposite is happening on on Israel. I think there there was we saw the ugly anti-Semitic parts of the right. and We can talk about that um, come out in, in force uh, as as Israel is building up its uh, response to the, this Hamas attack. But you're also seeing, I think I'd be curious here if you agree, that kind of negative partisanship kick in where a lot of Republican voters are seeing what the college campuses look like. And they're seeing what the streets in, um, you know, some of the worst cities in America look like, and they're seeing whose side those folks are on, and their negative partisan uh, instincts are kicking in. And that is solidifying support, I think, on the Republican side uh for Israel. So um as far as what that'll look like in the debates, I mean, it's going to give Haley an advantage. She knows what she's talking about. It gives Trump an advantage, e- even though he sucks and he's old and all the things we always say about him, you know, when he's talking about this stuff impromptu, it gives him an advantage because of his record, mm-hmm. because of what he did between 2017 and 2021. I mean, just, you know, l- l- love him or hate him as a person. If you're a, if you're a hawk and a supporter of Israel, it's hard to argue with what, what he did in Iran, um, and in Jerusalem and all those places, and it hurts. You know the people who are less serious about it. I think it's going to hurt Ramaswamy. I think it already has. Um, you know he's in in desperation. He's shacking up with uh, with what's his name, uh, Alex Jones. Alex Jones. You know? Yeah. So um, so I think there will be some effects, um, and they have to do with with the American response more so than the actual foreign entanglement, like what's what's happening on the ground over there. <laughs> um, but we'll see.
2: Yeah, I, I think the Israel thing, you know, it's, it still you know, has to play out. And it's, you know, again, always, you know, our our thing here is to talk about the political implications and, right, you know, the human implications are just so much more important. But I, I kind of wonder, I don't even want to talk about in a political realignment sense, but just sort of, I feel like we might be going through some sort of like cultural realignment. I mean, you know, you look at, I think we're all, you know, kind of, you know, same uh, boomer, you know, boomer millennials. And, you know, short of nine eleven, I don't, I just can't think of something else that feels like it's had this kind of impact just everywhere in American life. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are things that were. I may ask, you know, the Trump election in 2016, but it just, you know, especially where sort of, you know, we, we've seen that Twitter tribalism now take to the streets uh, in ways that I think are you know, really worrisome. Um, you know, as far as what that means for you know the campaign I mean it's it's still like yeah, it's looking up at the latest you know real clear politics you know rolling average and Trump is basically at his high water mark over you know the last six months he's you know he's got polls you know when we started doing this podcast several months ago you know he'd be in the you know you know 50 low 50s um he's had several polls now where he's sixty percent or north of sixty percent um you know it's some you know, at some point you have to wonder Did the consolidation already happen? it's trump and then you know everyone else is just kind of there um and, and when is trump going to sort of reassert himself as more of a national candidate and can he when he's obviously got a lot of legal challenges you know hit with his gag orders and contempts and you know all those kind of things um I, I think in the, you know, probably in the, the nearer term, it's, you know, I'd say that sort of what's going on in, in Georgia with, you know, some of the plea deals could potentially have more of an impact on the presidential race than, than the Israel thing. But I agree with Dan that I think Trump Haley and DeSantis are going to continue to sort of pull away. Um, I hope Ramaswamy, nine eleven truther, Ramaswamy mm-hmm. who now is hanging out with, you know, gross Sandy Hook truther, Alex Jones just goes away and never comes back again into national life. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's one tier one guy in Trump and two tier three people. And I think they're tier one talents, but it's just not getting that traction in, in DeSantis and Haley. And you know, again, it all comes down to Iowa.
0: Um, I I did want to mention the, <laughs> the Alex Jones thing. So I'm glad you brought it up. I don't think that we need to spend too much more time uh, talking about Mr. Ramaswamy. I think that he's gone in such a, a bizarre Uh, direction, uh, you know, that basically uh, ever since he ran into uh, the actual challenges uh, on stage from people, I just think he's gotten weirder and weirder. Um, But I do want to circle back to the mention of of Trump's legal challenges before we wrap things up, which is that, you know, we saw uh, obviously over the past couple of weeks, we've seen this series of (laughs) people taking plea deals in Georgia, uh, including most recently Jenna Ellis who gave kind of a tearful presentation about, you know, trusting the people around her and, you know, being a junior attorney and just trying to do her job and not doing due diligence to check claims, obviously, you know, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheesebro have also uh, pleaded guilty and Mark Meadows has flipped uh, and, uh, and taken sort of the other side of things as we, I believe uh, predicted on this show back in the day, Um, you know, and then of course there's Trump's challenges where he's in these uh, he's in these hearings uh, in front of, uh, you know the 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 challenges that he's facing, you know, uh, in uh, New York over this gag order, uh, and this judge who continues to find him here and there, um, it, it's the one thing that I think is is uh is doing a disservice here is because I think we we talked about this before, but the the idea that they were going to have all of these different cases thrown at Trump, I just think that it's something that was a real mistake on the part of now you can say this is just ambitious democrats you know who all want to be you know part of this and who all want to claim some type of credit for for taking down trump legally but i think the the new york case the latisha james case uh, in in particular it's just it's a mess and i think it's particularly a mess when you have things like this judge saying you know uh trump's lawyer trump's attorney complains that one of his court clerks is uh is rolling her eyes and and making sighing noises during her cross examination of a witness and in response you know uh trump says something that the the uh, judge then fines him $10,000 for but the judge also says i'm very protective of my staff i don't want anybody killed now i mean Maybe there are real threats against these staffers. You know, maybe that's something that is is happening that isn't being reported. But I I think that the, the thing is, every time they go to 11 on this stuff, I think it it hurts their case, uh, especially when, you know, you have Letitia James out there, uh, you know, continually posting on social media about the case. Uh, and, uh, you know, even as as Trump is supposed to be forbidden from, you know, criticizing, you know, her and Jack Smith and all these other people. And I just think that one of the things that is going on here is that it, as as we meander toward a point where assuming that the coalescing has happened, assuming that Trump is the nominee, assuming that there is no uh, path for DeSantis after Iowa or Haley that runs through South Carolina, you're going to end up in a scenario where all of these different things, the tick tock of these cases are going to have to be things that Republicans answer questions about that they can't shout down, as we saw you know Virginia Fox dude whatever reporter was asking uh Mike Johnson a question just you know yelling shut Sh- up <laughs> you know in, in a very blatant like uh, a cranky old lady way uh and, and I think that that's something that people need to keep in mind like you're you are you're able to skirt this because there's still technically a, a an actual contest going on uh that hasn't really ended yet that hasn't really begun yet because nobody's voted. Um, but once that contest ends, you know, assuming that that end comes in March, April next year, this is now going to be something that's at the center of every Republican across the country, having to talk about it, um, having to talk about the details of these cases, having to respond to whatever the latest thing that Trump says he's faded into the background a little bit, I think, because of everything that's gone on in the world, everything that people are concerned about, everything that they're worried about. But when he's back front and center again, I feel like he's going to take over the conversation again, that the media is going to be forcing him to be the center of the conversation because they think it's to their advantage, uh, that the left is going to go along with that because they think it's to their advantage, uh, and that Republicans, I think, are are woefully unprepared for the fact that they're going to have to defend him on a regular basis at a, at a completely different scale than they had to do in 2016.
1: I think that's a ticket... For everything you just said, I don't take issue with. I think it's true, but that's a ticket to a, a terrible blowout in a general election. I don't see it as a ticket to changing the dynamics of the primary at all because mm-hmm. of the nature of that electorate and the fact that the field is split and Trump is only going to need, you know, 40, 45 percent of primary voters, um, to win the whole thing and and also as these embarrassing moments accumulate and you know you're we're living in a world where he could very well be spend a night in a jail cell before any jury verdict comes in if he if he violates a gag order or finds himself in contempt you know but those things are going to stack up as thousands and millions of gop primary votes are being cast and you know like we saw in 2016 except at a much more uh um, at a much bigger scale, you know, the, the, or with with much higher stakes, the, the, you know, coalescing and the idea that, oh, you know, the field was going to have to winnow, um, to stand any chance of stopping Trump is, you know, that timeline does not match up neatly with the timeline of either when people cast votes or when these legal developments are going to happen and these issues are going to mount for Trump. So there, you know, and we've talked in the, you know, feels like the distant past now, but we've talked about a kind of, rally around trump effect of this legal persecution which i i think is a real thing in the primary electorate but it just is not a thing among swing voters and you know maybe we can touch on this for a hot second on the way out but but kennedy's inclusion as an independent makes that even less of a thing because the kind of swing voters that trump would need to win in a three-way race are really not into the fact that he's, you know, under criminal indictment in multiple States and the other kind of swing voters that he relies on and relied on in 2016 are all breaking for Kennedy. So he's in, he's in trouble from two directions there. So it's a ticket to a a general election cataclysm with all kinds of down ballot effects. You know, Trump has no coattails. We we've talked about this offline and in some sense, because the off year electorate, the midterm electorate hates him so much. Um, he has negative coattails, and the two kinds of voters—kind of the the RFK voter and the uh, you know the normy swing voter who broke for him in, in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan uh, last time around when he won—are not going to be there and are not into the fact that he might go to jail.
2: Yes, it's gonna be an, it's gonna be a huge <laughs> issue to for everyone to contend with. And, you know, I, I, you know, for people including myself that thought the, the, you know, the Russiagate stuff was, was hard to follow with all the competing narratives and legal documents. I mean, you know, this, you know, you've got three or four of those going on. I I think at some point it just becomes noise and people, you know, either, you know, it's going to be less, more evidence that Trump is a bad guy or it's, um, you know, more evidence that Trump is being persecuted by the deep state. Uh, Yeah. I guess the question is, you know, can can Trump kind of run? Yeah, well, you know, we'll, let's tie it all back together to the Louisiana thing. Can he run kind of that? You know, an Edwin Edwards race. You know, former former governor who ended up in the legal trouble, but then uh, prevailed uh, to once again become governor of Louisiana uh, by defeating David Duke. Um, you know, and the the slogan was, "You know, vote for the crook." It's important. Mm-hmm. Um, can can he, can he say? you know, can you basically i mean again he's he's never going to say like oh, you know i'm a bad guy because i think he thinks he's you know the greatest ever but like hey you know look i made mistakes but you know this is too important for you know if if, if the pre- if president trump is able to pivot away from him as the central character of of the campaign and make it to the american people um then you could see a narrative of like hey yeah sure those are all problems and you know my my fault again we're in a fantasy land where he would acknowledge something being his fault, but you know, if the if the world around us is looking more, you know, dangerous, or if the economy is you know in a place where people are, are dissatisfied, you know, maybe he can kind of push through that. But man, that's a that's a drag you don't want to have on your candidate if you don't have to, and it's one that you know, Republicans don't seem just willing to accept, but almost eager to. If you, you know, continue looking at the poll numbers. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Well, let's uh, let's wrap things up. I I just wanted to uh, ask one outgoing question, which is obviously, you know, with the Johnson kind of ascendancy, uh, this renders anything, any side deal uh, that had happened before moot on the Ukraine aid question, presumably, by the way, I mean, that's a disputed thing. There's lots of people who say that there wasn't such a thing that was going to happen. Personally, I think there's a ton of interest in the GOP conference among the moderates to still do something on Ukraine or to send more money uh, in their direction. Uh, and obviously, you know that it doesn't have the kind of unanimity that you see on the Israel side of the equation. Uh, assuming that things proceed the way that they're likely to, and you have a group of GOP senators now introducing this standalone bill uh, that would send money to Israel but not Ukraine. That's a that's a Cruz Vance uh lee uh uh roger marshall bill i don't know if holly's on that but uh, you know it's it's the ty- type of people you would expect um what do you think is going to end up happening with that do you think that this is going to be kind of the cutoff point where uh democrats shift from uh pushing for real ukraine funding beyond what's already been committed or do house democrats try to just jujitsu the situation and basically say uh, oh, it's those evil Republicans who are blocking us from doing it, despite the fact that you know, of course, the only reason that they're uh, that they're able to have that happen is because they shivved Kevin McCarthy along with uh, eight other Republicans.
1: Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. You know, I do think this, whatever its psychological roots or its psychological origins, I do think the Democratic enthusiasm for Ukraine is largely authentic at some level so it's not one of those things you always say would they rather have the policy or have the issue mm-hmm. and i mean that would be really cynical if the democrats in the house decided they'd rather have the issue of a you know an under you know supported whatever ukrainian resistance game. and
0: i or, am i am uh, <laughs> i think i'm aiming high you're gonna bet yeah you're gonna bet on, yeah, the, on, gonna the, bet on the cynicism <laughs> yeah i mean that would
1: be that'd be really cynical i mean the 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 funny thing is, is that for all of uh, Matt Gates's and, and companies talk of an open process and, and doing individual bills to, to fund the government, if the Hastert rule weren't a thing, and if Ukraine funding came up in the House and the Senate under kind of open parliamentary rules, simple parliamentary rules, disregarding the Hastert rule and cloture, then there would be broad bipartisan support for funding ukraine and it would be no big deal at all so for all of their you know for all of their complaints about a closed process in the swamp it's actually the quirks of senate and house rules that each in their own individual way are jeopardizing the ukraine bill i don't know what's going to happen with it i do think you know it's one of those things as a lot of people predicted at the time where because the ukrainian offensive underperformed Um, relative to Western expectations, there is not as much of a it's kind of like reading those old Civil War books about, you know, public, you know, Lincoln dealing with public opinion after every, you know, minor setback at a creek in Western Virginia. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's something like that going on with Ukraine and, and there's less enthusiasm for the cause. I think it's marginal, but less enthusiasm nonetheless, um, given that their offensive hasn't gone where it needed to go or where they hoped it would go, and given the increased salience of stuff going on in the Middle East. So I think Ukraine funding is in big, big trouble. If you put a gun to my head, I think something gets passed, but it's like 51-49 in terms of probability.
2: I think it's a little bit easier to to see a path. And I think that there's this narrative right now that Republicans are overwhelmingly opposed to ukraine aid and you know at least the last vote in the house doesn't bear that out it was pretty evenly split um you know and again it was 300 million dollars of aid 101 republicans voted for the aid 117 voted against uh i think that's sort of some of the 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 pundit class would like you to believe it's like a 90 10 issue but i think it's more of a 50 50 one and you know I, i think some of those 117 are are probably soft nosed that if they got a inspector general for ukraine funds um that or, you or know, something else that would have sort of more spending integrity around it, um, that you know, I think that that number could grow. And I think a lot of it will depend too. I think that the, on a lot of the b- budget issues and funding issues, I think the Senate is going to have, I mean, just a outsized impact. And I know that you know, Leader McConnell is having trouble trying to sort of link, um, you know, Israel and Ukraine aid, but you know, Chuck Schumer controls the floor, and it's not hard to imagine nine or ten Republican senators. Um, that are sort of more of an internationalist bent, or even 20 Republican senators uh, voting for some sort of clean CR that has, you know, Israel plus Ukraine plus border security kind of thing, depending on, you know, how you line up that mix of things. So, you know, I I think it's obviously, I think Ukraine is just passes overwhelming, I'm sorry, Israel passes overwhelmingly in both chambers. But I think you can see a, a coalition between, you know, a huge chunk of Democrats and, you know, 45, 50 percent of Republicans to continue providing funding here.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably what's going to end up happening, but it is, it is going to be interesting. And I think that we could point back to this at the point where uh, Democrats got a little too cynical with their play uh, and ended up uh, <laughs> taking us down the, the really wrong path. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see. Um, but uh, but it's it's definitely it's definitely interesting times in terms of so many so many new dynamics going on here. Uh, this has been Thunderdome. Right? And for John, for Dan and for myself, Ben Domenech, thank you for listening. You can head to the spectator.com dot com, subscribe to our newsletters there. Uh, sign up to get the, the, the issue, as I always encourage you to sign up for print and digital because the print copy is just so great. Uh, we've got some great articles, including. Uh, things on the migrant crisis this month and uh, and stuff next uh, next month that will be uh, my own reporting on uh, 3,000 words or so on this whole speaker battle and everything that played out. Uh, and uh, thank you as always for listening.'ll we'll, we'll be back next week with more to continue guiding you through this crazy election cycle. <laughs>